Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for tuning in to the You Can Do It Too podcast. My name is Mamadou Balde, and I'm your host. This podcast has two objectives. To provide a platform for minority professionals to share their inspiring stories and to inspire minority students to believe that their options are unlimited and that they can be whoever they desire to be. I hope this podcast ignites that fire inside of you and pushes you to strive to be the best you. On this podcast, I will be bringing minority guests from a variety of professions, engineering, medicine, entrepreneurship, law, business, etc. Who will be sharing their journey to where they are today with you. I hope that these stories will inspire you to believe that whatever your goal or your dream is, you can do it too. Ladies and gentlemen, what an amazing day to be alive. Man, for those of you who do not know me, my name is Mamadou Balde. I am your host. First of all, I want to start today by saying how sorry I am. For taking such a long time between episodes I usually post episodes between every two weeks but it's been a month and one week since I posted my last episode and uh, I'm not gonna go with the excuse of how crazy it has been and, and things like that I just want to say I'm sorry I did not post an episode for a while but this is very related to what has been happening in my life recently. It has indeed been crazy, uh, to be honest. So the way I usually lead uh, my life and schedule is based on my priorities. Yes, there are so many things going on, but I've tried to manage and see what is the priority right now and make sure I focus on that. One thing about me also is that whatever I want to do in this world, I really want to give my full attention to, which is very hard when you have a lot of things going on and you have a lot of alarms that's, that's yelling at you, but you need to figure out a way to know which alarm is more important to, to, to focus on. So the past few weeks has definitely been crazy in a good way. It's not too bad. It definitely has been a lot of work and a lot of time to to commit to things but it's all good stuff it's nothing bad stuff thankfully i am well my family is well and i sincerely hope that you and your family are doing well also first thing first uh, unity hills is ongoing full force i still have my marathon that's upcoming uh, which is february 20th i've been training and I've gotten so much better at running over the past few weeks. It's been crazy to see my growth, but I'm almost ready for the marathon. I have about three weeks before the actual thing. And uh, I'm so excited uh, to complete this project. And I'm hoping that we can reach our goal uh, of $5,000. Right now we are at 2,500. And as I said earlier, our goal is to reach $5,000. And hopefully by the final, by, by my final step, as I cross the finish line, we have reached that goal and we can put this behind us. Right. But, man, what else? Uh, there are a lot of things that's going on right now, as I said. One thing definitely in terms of updates, I, I was just uh, 
able to 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 invest in a house uh, here in Houston, Texas. I found uh, a, a great deal here in Houston, so I decided to go for it. And uh, I definitely felt the sense of overwhelmingness as soon as I moved in. Uh, but owning a home and renting is definitely two different things. You feel a sense of responsibility, uh, and you start noticing so many things that you wouldn't notice if you if you're not renting. So that has been a blessing so far, and uh, I've had so many of my family helping me move in, uh, which is one of the reasons that I haven't been able to spend so much time in my computer and uh, working on this podcast. But there are a lot of more other things that's going on, but uh, the only thing that I can say is that all those, everything has been doing great, has been doing great, I've been putting in the work, and uh, I cannot wait to share some of the successes uh, in the next few few days or few few months. <sighs> Happy New Year's, everyone. It's been a exciting, I think, New Year recently. I know we are still in the world of COVID-19. And uh, the amount of variance that COVID-19 has, uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe uh, almost the number of uh, alphabet letters that we have in the alphabet system. It is too much, man. Uh, but one thing that I know for sure is that uh, the new variants are less, uh, how to call it, um, less scary in a way. Uh, yes, people do get sick, but uh, the risk for death is not as high. Uh, it is definitely more infectious, so people are getting more corona. Everybody I know basically have corona uh, now, but... It's not as risky. Uh, people are not dying as much for it, which is uh, always some. It's better than having people dying. So, uh, the, I, I, in my eyes, that's definitely better. But I hope everyone keep continue to be as safe as possible, and uh, not just for themselves, but thinking about say keeping everyone around them safe. All right, so let's get into the, the, the meat of this episode. So today, I in this episode, I brought you uh, a, an amazing guest. I actually shot this episode uh, when I was back in Paris in December, and I haven't been able to release it. But this is still uh, an amazing episode and one of the best conversations that I had in my life. Uh, it is uh, Dr. B. Silla, Dr. Bernadette Silla, but she's, she goes by B. And uh, she's an amazing human being who, who were born in Guinea, West Africa. And at a young age, she moved here in the United States with uh, her mother and some of her uh, family members. And they started a life here. And she decided to follow in her mother's footsteps. Uh, growing up seeing how uh, the work that her mother did inspire her to become a physician and today she's a pediatrician in uh, in New Jersey and uh, she also has a non-profit organization uh, in, in Guinea working to, to help uh, improve the quality of life for uh, orphans in Guinea. Again, this is one of the greatest conversations I had and I hope you really, really enjoy it. Yeah, uh, I know you just went to Guinea. Uh, how how was that? 
Yeah, Guinea was great. It was great. I um, I always love going to Guinea. It's a nice refresher. I always say I just I need a break from America. <laughs> um, it was nice to go back, you know, see family. Um, it was my cousin's wedding celebration, who was also my best friend. So um, wow. it was a lot of that happening. Um, a lot of, you know, going up and down, running around, but it was good. It was like a big, nice family reunion. So it was nice. Wow. It was much needed. That is amazing. And me too. It's definitely a good place to refresh uh, and get away from the computers a little bit. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, thankfully, when I went, it hadn't started getting cold here yet. Um, so it was nice. I'm actually yeah. a bigger fan. I prefer when it's colder than when it's hot. I don't like when it's hot. Oh, really? so that's one of the few things I don't like about Guinea. It's the heat. Um, I, I thought you grew up in Guinea. <laughs> I spent a good time, a good part of my life in Guinea. I was there till I was 10. Yeah, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but I, I just, it just, I just, even here, I don't like the summer at all because I don't like the heat. Definitely. So definitely. Uh, I don't mind the fall, like when it's a little chilly. I don't mind that. I like that. Or like the spring, I like that. But in the yeah. summer oh, or the heat in Guinea, it's not fun. <laughs> I think you integrated it well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Really excited uh, about this conversation. I've been seeing you on Instagram a bit. And uh for this podcast, for the purpose of this podcast, I did my homework and uh, learned a little bit about you. So I'm definitely excited to touch upon some of the some great uh, some of your great life experiences, basically. And we may not have enough time to go through them all, but I'll try to do a good job in terms of uh, talking about the, the the good things, the good stuff. Yeah, of course. I mean, thank you. Thank you so much for reaching out. Thank you for having me. Um, it's always a pleasure to talk to, you know, fellow Guineans, fellow Africans. Yeah. Um, it always brings me great joy when I see, you know, fellow Guineans, fellow Africans doing things to kind of better the community. Uh, I usually love to partake in things like that. So thank you for having me. Of course. Definitely for me, it's an honor to sit down with uh, someone like you, inspiring person like you to, to learn about some of the things that you're doing and also get to talk to people like you who are doing amazing things out there. But for the audience, it's definitely very inspiring for them to, to hear your story and the things that you are doing out there, to know that you can you can chase your dream and at the same time do things, follow your passion and do things to add value to society for the benefit of other people's life, basically. So I want to start, I want to start this podcast with the current city, what's going on right now in your life. So it seems like you are in residency, right? Right now. I actually finished my residency uh, in July of 2021. I did mm -hmm. residency from 20, July 2018 to July 2021. Okay. Um, and I did my residency in pediatrics specifically. So I'm a pediatrician. Um, currently, I am a board certified pediatrician. I passed my boards um, in October, thankfully. Wow, and, congratulations. Uh, as of, thank you, thank you. Um, I am... Uh, I am able to practice pediatrics in New York City and in New Jersey. Yeah. Um, New Jer I live in New York and I work in Jersey, so that's perfect. Um, but currently, I am chief resident in pediatrics, meaning I am chief wow. of residents. 
Um, it's more so of a leadership management role. Um, but the big thing about that is also being able to, you know, give back what I learned in residency, helping other residents also grow um, and helping them become better doctors. Mm-hmm. So currently, that's my current of affairs in terms of my professional life. From the little things I know, that means you really did well in your residency. And the, the fact that you, you you are the chief of residence right after you finish residency and you're starting your attending career, that means they really see something new in terms of something that you can give back to the younger residents. Um, <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> I mean, um. I guess so. I think for me, and for me, it was an honor to be picked as chief resident, honestly. Mm -hmm. And um, the way my program does it is we have uh, other residents and faculty who vote for chief residents. So for me, it was an honor to to be able to be picked as chief resident. But the big thing for me, I was just extremely grateful to have that opportunity to not only grow myself as a leader, as a manager of people in the healthcare field, but to also, you know, impact somebody else's education. So to me, I saw it as more as thank you for giving me this opportunity rather than I feel lucky that, you know, I was yeah. picked for this. That's amazing. No? That's amazing. And that's very humble. That's amazing. Yeah. So you were, you were a resident in uh, 2020 when COVID-19 hit, a global enemy that no one at the time knew really what was happening around the world. Uh, and uh, I definitely heard a lot of stories. During that time, I, I subscribed to this news uh, platform called uh, Medscape. And I read a couple of articles about uh, uh, really the strain that many healthcare workers were facing during that time. Uh, in, uh, in in New York in, because of COVID. And there were even some, some cases where physicians were committing suicides because of everything that was happening. Talk about your experience there and uh, the, what was life like during that time as you were finishing up your residency? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, 2020 with COVID was rough. <laughs> I mean, it's still going on, to be honest with you. It's still it's still rough. Um, it's still very strenuous on the healthcare system and on residents altogether. Um, you know, while I was resident, I think, you know, one thing that I can say maybe we were a little fortunate about is that we're in pediatrics. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that with COVID, it mainly affects adults. And even if kids are infected, they don't get as sick. That's not to say that we did not see sick children. We did see a lot of sick children, um, <clears throat> a lot of very devastating things and heartbreaking things. I think one of the other things that really impacted us more is this um, inflammatory disease that you know was discovered post-COVID. So some kids ended up, um, after a couple of weeks after getting COVID, they end up going into this uh, huge inflammatory disease called MISC. Mm-hmm. We ended up seeing a lot of that, um, you know, and um, that to us was, you know, that was our wave of dealing with the harshness um, of COVID. But uh, that's not to say, um, I think some of the ways that we were impacted, I think, you know, because pediatrics were not 
uh, kids were not so highly impacted. And because of quarantine, we definitely did see a lower volume of mm-hmm. kids coming into the hospital. So that definitely impacted a little bit of our education in terms of how much we see because most most kids were home. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that happened as, as a result of that is the kids who ended up coming into the hospital hospital were actually very very sick kids we got very very sick kids who ended up being coming in so um that just meant that you know we had to step out of our comfort zone and you know become better at treating very sick kids Mm -hmm. um and then some other things that also happened i think a huge part of it was the fact that a lot of us were also short-staffed because you know people got covid people's families got covid um, so we were extremely short staffed and we just had to help each other. And that wow. meant that your social life or your personal life was impacted for sure. Um, so we did have some, a lot of issues with resident wellness altogether, not just in pediatrics all over, which in some subspecialties, mainly the adult specialties, um, it was very tough on them leading to you know, a lot of mental health issues and some people, you know, committing suicide, unfortunately. So those are some of the negative repercussions. Um, But we did try as much as we can to help each other. And I think that's one thing that COVID brought out this spirit of really we're doctors, we're physicians, we help others, but we also help ourselves. And it really brought up, brought out that concept of we have to be there for ourselves. We have to be there for each other. Um, so some of us helped out in adult units, um, because again, they were overwhelmed and short staffed. Mm-hmm. Um, so just trying to be collegial about it, um, Definitely. as much as we can, but the, the wellness and mental health was definitely impacted. And honestly, these are things that we still feel to this day. Yeah. Um, a lot of us are still struggling with it on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of us developed new anxieties that we're still dealing with and coping with. Um, and, you know, over the summer, a lot of things, you know, loosened up. But now we're hitting another surge. We're actually, we're in the middle of another surge. Yeah. Um, and we're seeing a lot more kids coming into the hospital as well. Um, and then with the vaccine, um, you know, thankfully, a lot of people got vaccinated. But, you know, there were some effects from the vaccine that we also saw in the hospital. So. Needless to say, it's an endless learning process with yeah. COVID. Yeah. Um, it's, it's strenuous, for sure. It takes a huge toll on mental health. But I think, you know, a lot of us came out as, you know, better and more resistant uh, physicians. No, definitely. And one thing that you mentioned was teamwork, definitely, in, in these times where you're facing a global enemy, right, in that strange situation. Is definitely important, and one can notice uh, the the difference in leadership in in specific establishment definitely make the difference in terms of how many people can end up really getting hurt by the strain of the system. Yeah, for sure, and I think you know I'm I'm grateful that. Our um, hospital leadership, and particularly the pediatric leadership at my job, did a really good job at keeping that in mind. Um, We did try to establish systems and backup systems in place um, to help one another out. Uh, We put out a a better emphasis and higher emphasis on physician wellness. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think, you know, being in pediatrics, most people will tell you we're the nicer 
doctors. We're, we're extremely caring and compassionate. So yeah. a lot of that spirit came out um, where, you know, everybody was just kind of helping, uh, helping each other out. People used to go get groceries for each other and things like that. Um, so just kind of helping each other out, get through it. But definitely, I think uh, the leadership makes a huge difference in um, in how well people can get through versus cannot get through. No, definitely. No, definitely. That's amazing. And I, for, I know definitely that uh, COVID-19 was, was a, a big thing in 2020. But another thing, another thing that was very, how to call it, influential for us was uh, the civil, the civic issues that was happening in the U.S. specifically, uh, the killing of black people, and the fact that uh, we were seeing that many, many black people were being treated the wrong way, and uh, a lot of injustices were happening in terms of the black community. And you, you, someone who's committing to your life to really do whatever you can. To, to help people and improve lives in, in, in our society, no matter how how isolated you are, I'm sure that kind of influenced your 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 mental being, right? It, it kind of shook it shook everyone up, basically, uh, specifically the killing of George Floyd. How did you cope uh, during that time with? With the fact that everything was going on and everyone everyone was isolated, like how hard was it for you to to cope and uh, and make sure that you were good mentally? Um, yeah, I mean that's a good question. I I, I think we we went through tough times all together. Um, I think for me, the big thing was I am a person. I I firmly believe in just getting through things. Um, so one of the big things, of course, is just, you know, educating yourself, uh, raising awareness and, you know, having conversations and a lot of the conversations are very tough conversations. Um, but also surrounding yourself with people who can help create that support system for you. Mm. I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of racist, a lot of racist things did happen. A lot of, um, Injustice was happening. Um, a lot of you know people were being killed for absolutely no reason. A lot of that was happening. But I think to me, what was more, a little bit more striking, or I think hit home a little bit more for me, was the fact that COVID really brought out um, the deep down rooted injustice that's in the healthcare system. I think you know it's not a hidden fact that people of colors disproportionately died um it's a reality that people of color are more likely to be orphans second due to covid um we did have some economic impacts that affected healthcare system in children um access was already tough in some communities so those are the things that hit home more for me than anything else and i think those are the things that if anything, maybe took a greater toll on like my mental health, it would be that because I just felt powerless in a wow. system that's designed to, you know, isolate a certain group of people. Um, and it's hard for them to actually come out of that. Wow. Um, so the big thing is, you know, 
again, like that's just educating yourself and trying to put things into perspective and then doing what you can. I think, you know, we do want to change the world, but unfortunately we can't change everything, but it's changing things a step at a time. Um, so one of the big things that we're huge on in pediatrics is like advocacy, you know, so advocating for children's rights, advocating for access to healthcare, um, you know, raising awareness, doing everything we can to make things accessible, making sure there's social aid available, Mm -hmm. you know, making sure, um, people who are sick know to go to the hospital, even in our Guinean community here, for example, a lot of people got sick from COVID, didn't go to the hospital. Some people ended up dying at home. Yeah. So raising awareness on things like that, that's what I decided to hop on. And I think that's what helped me get through. Um, because obviously you can't fix everything, um, but just kind of learning to hone in on the things that you can actually fix mm-hmm. um, and working on that. Wow. No, that's amazing. And one thing that you mentioned is uh, the idea of getting through uh, the, the dilemma that you are in. And that's that's the definition of perseverance. And I feel like out of so many things that we learn where we came from, that's definitely something that we learn from the life that we live uh, in Guinea. Let's go back a little bit to, to your roots and talk about where you came from and how you became. How, how, what was the base of who you are were founded so you you were born in guinea right in conakry yes that's correct i was born in conakry that's amazing so i'm assuming you speak susu a little bit wonowali <laughs> wonowali yeah so i mean i i think i think for me thankfully i have a very diverse family um and i think that's that's definitely helped me in my ability to be you know, to to be well-versed in people, to be able to interact with people, to be able to understand people and to be able to tolerate people. Um, my father is Susu, um, but my mother is Fulani. Um, so I live in a multicultural home. And then my namesake, which is, you know, a lot of people in the community see like, why is your name Bernadette? Um, it's because my grandmother, who's my namesake, she's Haitian. Mm. Um, so it, I have, I live in a very diverse family altogether. Um, and so I think for me, that was a very important part in building who I am as a person, a person who can be part of different communities and bring those communities together. Wow. That is amazing. That is amazing. Wow, I definitely you are uh, in in Guinea. I mean, is we definitely have some somewhat some kind of uh, intermarriage in terms of the tongues, and that's the I feel like that's the beauty of 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 our country. Recently, uh, there's definitely a lot of division in terms of the the different tongues, but. Overall, it is something that we are proud of, the fact that we have so many dialects and, and that came from different tribes, basically. But grow, you grew up in Guinea from when you were born to the age of 10. Uh, can you talk about like what was life like in, in Guinea during your childhood? What were some of your happy moments? Like, uh, I mean, before you came back to Guinea as an adult, uh, when you were here, what were some of the things that you always longed toward to in terms of like things that made you happy that you missed? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And, and just one thing, one point I definitely do want to um, bring back, something that you mentioned. You know, we do have different ethnic groups in Guinea, and it just feels like recently there's just been this huge ethnic divide. Mm -hmm. I do firmly believe that that's not very recent. I think that's something that has been, it's been happening in Guinea for a long time. Yeah. I think it's just that recently, maybe people are more aware or like maybe now it just seems a little bit more like a war, but it's not new in Guinea. And You're the reason right. why I say that, it's, um, I remember even when I was younger <laughs> in Guinea, during the elections in Guinea, you know, if you're Susu, you vote for the Susu uh, person. If you're Fulani, you go for the Fulani person. If you're Malinke, you go for the Malinke person. So that's not new. That's always been there. And I think, you know, one thing we lost sight of, and I really, really hope and pray that we get back to this, is we have to accept that, you know, there is a diversity in Guinea, and we have to learn to embrace that. Because in my opinion, that's what makes Guinea so beautiful. Mm -hmm. You know, it you is. you go to you in Bascot, of course, you know, Susu is prevalent, but then you there's Fulani. You go to Mamo, you know, of course, you know, Fulani is prevalent, but you hear Susu, you hear Malenke, you know, it, it's just it's so it's so beautiful, it's integrated. And you know, people in Bascot, you hear a native Fulani person speaking in Susu and vice versa. So I think that's what makes it so beautiful. And I think yeah. we need to be very, we need to be better about embracing that, loving that, accepting it, and also, you know, sharing that with one another. And I think that's going to make us a better community altogether. That's going to strengthen um, us. That's going to definitely strengthen us. And together exactly. we can go much further. Exactly. And so I do firmly believe that, you know, this ethnic divide, it's not new in Guinea. It's always mm -hmm. been there, but I think it's just, where we've come to a point where we see it as a problem mm -hmm. rather than a solution. Exactly. And I think we should start seeing it as a solution and as an opportunity to become better. I think um, the, the killings because of the ethnic differences have been recent, uh, if I'm not so mistaken. So that's also not recent. That's also not recent. Um, you know, okay. that goes back to, you know, when Guinea first became independent and then under the second regime, it happened. Under the third one, it happened. But again, that's a, that's a different, I think that's a different podcast. So I'm not even <laughs> going to go into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but going back to your question about, um, you know, growing up in Guinea, I loved growing up in Guinea. I miss my childhood in Guinea so bad, you know, the first couple years here, I didn't want to stay here. I wanted to go back to Guinea. Actually, we did not come in the optic of staying here. So I was mentally prepared to come to stay in the U.S. I wanted to go back to Guinea so bad simply because I love my childhood. I um, grew up in Coloma Solo Primo. Um, okay. And there, you know, I had so many friends, you know. I, my house, in my house, we mainly spoke French. Um, but I learned Susu in my neighborhood. I learned Fulani in my neighborhood. My best friends, next door neighborhood neighbors, whom we're still very good friends to this day. We actually call each other cousins. You know, they're Fula. Where that's how I learned Fulani, mm -hmm. right? Well, you think it's funny it would be my mom, but no, it was through them. Um, you know, we were always outside, always outdoors, playing. Um, you know, school was fun. Um, even though the discipline system over there is a little bit more different. So I definitely got hit a couple of times. Mm -hmm. um, but 
I think altogether, it was just a much richer experience. You know, I felt like I had a childhood. I was social. I was playing. You know, it, it the safety. I mean, of course, there were safety issues, but it, it wasn't. I don't know. It was. It wasn't as bad as here, where you're scared to let your kid go outside because somebody might shoot them or something like that. You know. Mm-hmm. So that that fear wasn't there. It was freedom it was a lot of freedom and i really really loved that about my childhood in guinea yeah there was definitely um, a sense of community that pushed that it makes as you said the best friends that you had i'm sure you were able to go to their place if you want and have food and not feel like and being taken care of right if they see you so doing something wrong they'll definitely be the first one to call your mom and tell you tell your mom to come get you or, or make sure that you are disciplined. And that is something that definitely could be missing here in the U.S. Yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. I That that sense of community, that sense of, you know, we're all in one, we're all in this together, we're all going through it together. If you have problems, your neighbors help you, they have problems, you help them, you know. Um, I think I, I definitely... I'm glad I got to experience that as a child because I think it definitely um, fueled the type of person I am as an adult and the type of goals I have in mind. Um, and so moving here was definitely a harsh transition and a harsh reality for me. It was a huge culture shock coming to a country where basically individualism is prioritized and valued. Um, sorry, let me just decline this call. Um, where individualism is uh, valued and prioritized um, compared to community, where everybody's kind of just out for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was definitely like a wake-up call. Um, having to learn the language for sure was not fun because, you know, like I told you, French was French is the first language in Guinea. So that's basically what I knew well. Um, and then just having to be away from most of my cousins, having having to be away from most of my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, um, not being able to grow up with them. I think that was also another culture shock. Wow. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then just integrating here. But I think, you know, I was fortunate enough that my parents are very huge on education and they supported my siblings and I in our education and to do whatever we wanted education wise. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were able to navigate the school system and, um, you know, grow up that way and remain disciplined throughout school until we became adults and got jobs. Yeah. Um, but now, you know, my big thing right now is going back to Guinea to work in Guinea. Because wow. I don't foresee myself staying here in America for the rest of my life. I really, really want to go back to, you know, give back to my country and to be home. I think for me, home is Guinea. Home is not America. So America is just, you know, a transition point for me. That is so exciting. And I definitely want to learn more about that. Well, coming back, how I think we definitely have a lot of... Uh, we have a very similar story in terms of coming to the U.S. and because uh, I also left at the age of 12 uh, from, from Guinea and came to Texas and had to learn English and all of that. One thing that I wanted to ask you, did you come with the parents? What was the nature of the move? Yeah, so, I mean, the initial, you know, goal was to come on vacation, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, just to enjoy a couple months and then go back. Um, but then we 
came and um, my parents had friends who, you know, thankfully lived here, were really good people um, who convinced them to let us stay so we can just, you know, have better educational opportunities here. And so we decided to stay. So we ended up staying with my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad went back to Guinea because he was working there. Um, and it's not easy to just leave your good job in Guinea and come here. Um, so we ended up going with my mom and my dad, of course, would come back and forth, which is very nice. And we can say we're very fortunate for that because we, mm-hmm. we always felt his presence and always still feel his presence in our lives. Wow. Um, so we kind of just grew up with my mom. And yeah. That's amazing. So. I read that she was an OBGYN in Guinea, right? Yes, that's correct. My mom was an OBGYN in Guinea. Uh, she she's one of those brainiacs. Um, she her whole life was basically school. Mm-hmm. Um, she finished school high school very early at the age of sixteen. Um, she got oriented to medicine at the time with the help of the Guinean's first president, Amadou Touré. Uh, rest wow. in peace to him. Um, so she got oriented into medicine um, and then she became an OBGYN and she worked there for a very long time. Um, she initially worked at Inyas Dean, but then uh, she worked at uh, Centre de Santé de Poya. And then from there, she went to Centre de Santé de Manea and then she was in Conakry uh, working there. Um, but she also did have like her own little setup at home where she just helped a lot the of the women in the neighborhood. Yeah. Wow. Um, until we moved here, yeah. Okay, so you guys, when, when you moved, she just stopped working there and transitioned in the United States, basically. Yeah, that's that's exactly correct. And, you know, unfortunately, it's very hard to, um, you know, transfer all your uh, diplomas here when you mm-hmm. come here. If you're a doctor in Guinea, I, essentially, you kind of just have to do everything all over. Again, and yeah. that was just not very realistic for her. And, you know, we're fortunate that she um, she made the sacrifice to kind of, you know, let go of her medical career just to make sure that we're good in school and to take care of us. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, my goal for her is to go back and just pick up right where she left off. Wow. So hopefully I'm trying to convince her to go back with you're me. Tr- you're <laughs> trying to get that started. No, that's amazing. And as you said, it's definitely a big sacrifice to to leave to leave what you have and just focus on the what's best for your kids. And that's what many of our family members uh, had to do for us in order to be able to be in the in a better platform so we can even make a so we can be successful. The goal was for the goal for them was for us to be successful, but the investment that they made for us is even pushing us and motivating us to give back uh, in a bigger way. So that's amazing. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And I think for me, that was a huge motivator. You know, it's like my parents, you know, both my parents, my mom and my dad sacrificed so much for me to be where I am. So there's no way I'm not going to be successful. There is no way I'm going to let them down. You know, wow. I'm going to, you know, do everything that I get, everything that I can to make sure that I make them proud to make sure that they know that their sacrifices were not in vain. Um, which is the reason why, you know, I chose to discipline myself and try to do the best that I can, you know, to be somebody so that, you know, one day I'm the one helping them and they don't have to feel like they have to sacrifice anymore for me. That's the goal and that's the blessing that 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 we live in. And and Dr. B, I know 
we 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 never met and i think you are a, you are some years ahead of me but our story is, is very similar because i i also left guinea uh, as i said earlier at the age of 12 and and moved to the us and i grew up also with a father who who was a physician in guinea a surgeon in uh, i mean in conakry and uh, he also had a clinic divided our house into two uh, to help the community. And I grew up watching him uh, commit commit all his time basically to help. And that really ingrained uh, in me uh, a sense of, of service. And, and as you said, the sacrifices that they made to get us right here is definitely something that have motivated me to do more than I can to make sure that the, those sacrifices don't, don't be in vain, basically. Yeah, and honestly, that's that's so commendable. I I'm always happy to hear things like that. I'm always very inspired by people like that too. You know, because honestly, as much as a lot of parents sacrifice, not everybody gets that mindset of oh, you know, I am going to try to help my parents. So I think first and foremost, it's such a blessing to have that mindset, and it's so commendable to have that mindset. And I think you know, altogether, I think we should you know, continue to be ambassadors for the community, the youth to get into that mindset, that get into that community mindset, get into that service mindset of, you know, servicing others because our parents made sacrifices to get us where we are. And we are in a place where we have a much better than most people, even though, you know, we struggle, the struggles are part of life, but we need to see them as opportunities, you know, flip them around um, into service, flip them around into giving back into the community and also flip them around into giving back to our parents, right? Because at Definitely. the end of the day, our parents are the first members of our community. Definitely. No, I completely agree. I completely agree. And uh, I read that at the age of, uh, not at the age, but when you were in eighth grade, you you found out that you decided that you wanted to follow in your mother's footsteps and, and be a physician. And uh, definitely that was inspired by the kind of, by, by the life that you see your mother lead. Talk about that experience growing up. Like, how did you, like, what, what how did you regard your mother? Because many times when people are doing amazing things, they don't know that the kids are watching, right? The kids are catching them in moments of excellence. And I feel like those moments of excellence that you see your mother led really inspired you to pursue this and be someone that's gonna work for the rest of their life to help people. Talk about growing up and how how did you regard your mother uh, in that in, in with those eyes? Yeah, that's that's a that's a great point. You know, um, that that's a, that's a really really good great point. I don't think a lot of I, maybe parents don't realize or it just doesn't come to them at the time that their kids are really just watching them. And I think that's just what I did with my mom. My mom is my role model. Um, she's my number one. She's the person I'll go to for advice. Um, and I always say this. I, I, she's one of the very few people in this world who I can say anticipates all my needs very well. Wow. So I am extremely grateful for her. But um, growing up in Guinea... I used to sometimes go with her to work. 
Um, like when she has seminars, I used to just stand there and watch her prepare for her seminars. Sometimes I used to offer my help to prepare with her. Um, when she used to have some of the women over, you know, in the little clinic that she set up at the house, I used to, you know, just be there and watch her. I used to just enjoy being in that space. Um, but one thing I really, really loved is following her to work. And I used to <laughs> love going with her to work, just tagging along wow. and, you know, just watching her. I think my mom, she has this calm and grace about her. Um, my mom is one of those people. She will put her last penny on the line to help somebody else, wow. you know? So like just watching that, that, that mindset of sacrifice and service, you know, just leaving giving everything she can to other people even when she even things that she doesn't have she'll give um so just watching that i think all of that really inspired me um and because i also loved being in that environment um and i saw and understood a lot of the impact that she had on you know other people i definitely wanted to partake in that and i wanted to be like that because honestly i want to be like my mom um so i think a lot of that fields um the fact that um i want to be a physician and even when we came here i mean my mom she's she's a very brave person i mean she of course couldn't go back to medical school but she went back to school you know she got a degree here um she became a medical assistant here you know just so she's still in the medical field currently she's working at lincoln hospital exactly so seeing how she had, you know, with us, she still went back to school and still did all these things. You know, she never said no. She invested every little penny she could just to make sure that we have a good education and we have everything we need. I think a lot of that also inspired and motivated me, you know, because and that's what I always say. If she could do it, then anybody could do it. And um, I allowed that to be you know, the reason why I didn't make excuses for myself as to why I can't do something. Definitely. And that was obvious, right? Because, I mean, teaching, teaching your kid to have a service mindset is, is a, a, a big, an amazing thing. But for you, it seems like she also empowered you to believe that you can be whoever you want from a young age. And you, that was very obvious because from a young age, you started, you started, helping people doing things to add value to your society uh and even won the 2010 miss guinea uh at the time you you were still very young uh talk about like the the kind of lessons that she taught you in terms of empowering you to to believe that you can do whatever you want no matter your age basically yeah and i think you know one thing i definitely must say i think the type of empowerment my mom, you know, did, it wasn't like one of those, like, oh, she's giving me motivational speeches all day or like, you know, <laughs> just like motivational things all day. No, it wasn't like that. It wasn't that type of expression. You know, I think the type of empowerment that my mom gave me is setting, one, setting the example, you know, like her doing things, her being brave, her being courageous. Um, and then opening those things to me, I think that was one way. I think the other way too was supporting me fully and like 100% complete investment in what I was doing. You know, big, when I decided to run for Miss Guinea, she 100% fully invested in it. 
you know, when I decided to go to medical school, she 100% fully invested in it. You know, even in Guinea, I remember when I was like studying for like my exam and stuff, you know, is she, she's not going to say, oh, you can do this. You're great. You're smart. No, that's not the type of, and you know, empowerment, the type of empowerment she gave was she would stay up with me at night and sit with me and, you know, we would study my lessons together. We would that memorize my lessons together. You know, I still remember to this day sitting with her in the dark with like a lamp on and she was teaching me how to draw the Guinean map in preparation for my exam. So that was the type of empowerment that my mom gave me, just being there with me through the process and supporting me 100% through the process and allowing me to be part of her process as well so I can experience that. That is amazing. And you talked about the lamp. I just felt homesick. <laughs> I remember those lamps where you have, after one thing gets dark, I mean, we didn't have electricity that much going up. So we had to use those lamps that was powered with, uh, was it kill? We call it carcinic. Uh, I don't even know what, what kind of petrol. I think it was petrol. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, patrol. Was patrol. Patrol that was usually, yeah. yeah. But those were definitely efficient. And and for us who studied under those, I mean, there was no other distractions. It definitely kind of, I mean, it, we didn't feel the hardship of it. But I just felt homesick when you mentioned it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. But that is amazing. And you brought up a great point in terms of just the support. And to be honest, uh that is not something that is uh that that is not something that is that is something that is rare in in our country like many parents do not give that support to their kid i mean at least from my experience i feel like in our culture we have this culture where the the parents lead and uh, they tell you what to do right and sometimes they 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 believe they know what's best for you but you mentioning about how your mom really supported you by being there, not having to say anything, but just making sure that you know that she was there for you. That is something that is amazing. Yes, for sure. And it's something that I truly, truly appreciate because, you know, for me, I'm a person who believes that actions speak louder than words. So, you know, just because she doesn't, she didn't say the words doesn't mean that she didn't act the words out. And um, I am glad it turned out to be that way because I didn't fall into this trap of having to constantly hear reassurance, mm -hmm. you know, or like having to hear verbal reassurance about things that I was doing. It was more so like, okay, it taught me to see people for what they do, not what they say. Wow, that's amazing. So with the support of your mother, and uh, your hard work and perseverance after adapting to the United States, uh, learning, oh man, we have to talk about learning English. <laughs> How was learning English for you? Because I remember uh, for us, we, the way we learned it, my sister and I, because we came without our parents, we had to go to the library. Uh, the first three months, we spent all our time in the library reading books, starting with smaller books to, to bigger books and eventually learning how to talk. Uh, but how, how was learning English for you? Learning English, <laughs> it was tough. 
for sure. But I can say, thankfully, we learned, um, we're able to be fluent in English in the first six months. Um, yes. And I, because we literally were thrown into the school system. It's like you either, you know, you swim or you swim type of situation. I think that's the best uh, way. <laughs> Especially no one, no one is there to speak French or any language right. that you know. So you, you have to figure out a way to communicate. Exactly. Um, so, you know, being thrown into the school system, um, we had our English French dictionary at home that was, you know, that we abided to um, very religiously. And then um, also like reading books. My mom would take us to the library, you know, to check out books, read books. She or she would like bring free books to us and, you know, we'll just read through them, go through them and, you know, kind of just practicing. And honestly, before you know it, we were just talking English to each other all the time. Um, I honestly do not even remember when the transition happened, but it just happened <laughs> where we were. We went from just speaking French to English. Wow. No, that's amazing. That's amazing. I definitely uh, had, had to go through the same thing in terms of uh, the English. But as you said, uh, when you are going through it, you don't feel the pain of it. I mean, you you because you are you are in the mindset of you need to figure it out, and there's no excuses. And later, people say, "Oh, wow, you really went through that," but you really don't didn't feel it because you just had to figure it out. Yeah, for sure. I definitely did feel it one time. I think when um when I was I was in sixth grade, and I think a couple months in. You know, because in Guinea, I was a very social person. I was a very outspoken person in school, in class, like, you know. So coming here and being integrated in a school system where I don't speak the language, that was a huge culture shock for me. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it definitely played on my social health. Um, so like one day I was just like, you know, why not? I'm just going to read out loud in class. And I raised my hand to read out loud and like, everybody laughed at me <laughs> it was so painful <laughs> at the time but like now thinking back at it you know i'm happy that i did it right because it helped me step out of my comfort zone it helped me step out of my shell and i think it only made me better because the next time around that i read of course you know not only i was better but i also did not care as much that people laughed mm -hmm. that's it yeah that's definitely it you have to no matter no matter what's around you just focus on controlling what you can control until you get to a place where you are fully in control but that's amazing there are uh, we have so many things to talk about in terms of medical school and, and uh, residency and stuff like that but for the sake of time let's go into the the b project so after your miss guinea uh when you 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 kept going right uh you you kept going i think may, maybe miss giddy gave you a good platform for you to have more support but uh, later you created the, the b project which is something that you are still working on right talk about can you give a little description of what the b project and the orphanage that you are helping yeah for sure um yeah so I, you know, just to give a little bit of background, I was Miss Guinea USA in 2010. Mm -hmm. um, and through Miss Guinea USA 2010, um, you know, not only you had to be a beauty ambassador, but you also had to have a humanitarian project mm -hmm. that you could carry out. 
And part of my, you know, humanitarian project was going back to Guinea and making donations um, at, you know, uh, local schools mm -hmm. and also like offering a scholarship. So I am extremely thankful that I did have that experience. And to this day, I'm super, super thankful to the founder of Guinea USA, Fatima Diallo, um, who is like a sister to me. She's like mm -hmm. a tour to me to this day. Um, and we literally grew, grew together um, through a lot of, you know, Miss Guinea and whatever happened after Miss Guinea. Mm -hmm. um, and she's a person who definitely has that service mindset. And yeah. I think that also inspired me a lot. So super thankful to her. Shout out to her. Um, so then in um, 2012, you know, I was in college. I, of course, wanted to carry forward or carry on what I was doing. Mm -hmm. So I decided to start with, you know, a nonprofit. But initially it was just like an initiative. So it was just going to be the B Project initiative. Mm -hmm. um, so collected some funds, collected some goods just to give back to Guinea. But then, of course, I decided to turn it into a nonprofit organization that would be more sustainable. Yeah. So the B Project, it's a it's a nonprofit. It's a 501c3 uh, nonprofit organization. It's based in New York City, mm -hmm. but the target area is Guinea. Yeah. Um, and the goal is to um, help, you know, socially economically disadvantaged women and children living in Guinea. Um, by providing basic needs, access to education. And more recently, we're starting to incorporate more access to health care and help with health care. Um, so since we started, um, our main sponsor is an orphanage called Regina Maris. It's located in Kipe, Conakry. Mm -hmm. um, and so since then, at least two to three times a year, we go back to give, you know, food, clothing, school supplies, money for medical needs. Um, a couple of years ago, we completely renovated their dormitories, installed brand new beds and new mattresses for them, um, fixed their bathrooms because their bathrooms were in really bad shape and it wasn't sanitary. Um, a couple of years ago, or like earlier towards the beginning, we did bring them laptops um, because the way the orphanage is set up, they have children from age zero to 18 years. Um, a lot of those children are also handicapped, so it's hard for them to actually go to school. So they have a school in the orphanage. And so we try to equip the school as much as we can, provide funds for them to equip their library. Um, so that's our ongoing relationship with Regina Maris. And of course, we're always raising funds. We're always encouraging people to donate. And oftentimes, what we'll, if somebody reaches out to us, to us that they want to make a donation, we'll just accompany them because we know them. We have a relationship. We'll just mm -hmm. take them to for them to make a donation because at the end of the day, as much as we want to help, we want to empower other people to also help. We want them to know that they can do it. You know, Absolutely. and we just want to be there to accompany them. We don't want the credit. We just, we want them to have the credit for, you know, their initiative. That um, is amazing. Yeah. And then we also do have other um, beneficiaries. Um, we do try to give out to orphanages here and there, usually the ones that come out to us in dire need of things. We usually bring things like clothes and food. Mm -hmm. um, people who reach out to us um, with SOS meeting, 
um, help with, you know, covering medical expenses, we'll raise funds for them and send them the money. Um, after the violence that happened during the elections, we did raise uh, money and send out some of the victims who were gravely injured. Wow. Um, a couple of years ago, we also did send out goods and um, a small fund to a nonprofit that deals with children with um, hydrocephalus. Hydrocephalus is a chronic condition where, you know, the head swells up mm-hmm. um, just to kind of come to their assistance as well. Wow. We have made donations to uh, Donka, the pediatric and maternity ward as well. Um, so again, ongoing process for sure. And it's an organization. Um, it's a small nonprofit, uh, but we're expanding little by little. But our big thing is just, you know, doing sustainable things. And I think we've been pretty good at being consistent about providing basic things for Regina Maris. And then, you know, anybody else who needs help will help them on a as needed basis. That's amazing. Consistency is definitely a big key step. And the second big deal is funding. Uh, many times you have amazing ideas, but without funding, it's hard to execute it. And when you have a good sustainable system that bring in funds for, for the kind of ideas that you have, it, it, it's amazing. It's amazing. And you can definitely have much more impact uh, like that. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, funding is usually the hardest part of any uh, running any nonprofit organization, honestly. But, you know, I think I'll use this as an uh, as an opportunity to, you know, ask people to, of course, help us. Um, You know, you can learn more about us at www.thebproject.org. We also have an Instagram page um, at The Bee Project. Um, or if you follow my personal page, um, there's a link to the B project, one of the fundraisers that we're currently running. Um, and we have two running fundraisers. One of them is to collect funds to help cover medical expenses. And the other one is to collect funds to provide basic needs to, you know, children in need, essentially women and children in need. Definitely. But if anybody's also interested is like, you know, donating or they just want to go visit the orphanage, we're happy to with them, you know, for them to take a look themselves and donate whatever they want to donate. Yeah. No, I'll definitely follow it. Everybody go and follow at Debris Project on Instagram. And I'm I don't know if you know, I recently started a nonprofit organization, uh, Unity Hills. It's, it's a very recent uh, organization, and uh, my vision is also uh, improving healthcare uh, in most underserved communities around the world, but starting with Guinea. Uh, but we definitely starting, I don't think, uh, in terms of one of the things that we are dealing with right now is the fundraising, just trying to come up with it innovative systems that's gonna keep the organization sustainable. And I may definitely reach out for mentorship on that front with your experience with nonprofit and stuff like that. Yeah, that sounds that sounds great. That sounds very exciting. And I'm definitely excited to hear more about it. I know I came across the page on um, on Instagram, but I'm definitely happy um, and excited to hear more about it. Definitely. And I, I know we are running out of time here, but one thing that I wanted to make sure to talk about is your plans uh, coming back to Guinea. And uh, many times when we talk, we tell our story to people here about where we came from and, uh, and our ambitions, the first question that they ask 
are you gonna stay here or are you gonna go back home and uh, help you help people over there and many times uh there are different answers right and uh, some some people believe that uh, to help their family best is to to maybe stay here where they can earn more money and the money can potentially help more over there but for others they want to go back and uh, they want to be on the ground over there and help directly as as much as possible talk about your thought process after you received a, an amazing education here in the us and uh, talk about your thought process in terms of what you want to do uh, moving forward. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I definitely want to go back to Guinea. Mm. I <laughs> I don't foresee myself living here. Mm. You know, I'm very grateful to America for the experience and the education, but I think, you know, it's within my duty to go back and mm. share that with my country, share that with my community. Um, Guinea is in lack of pediatricians. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think one thing we don't understand, uh, you know, it's easy to be a generalist and understand everything, but pediatrics is a very special field and a very specific field. Mm -hmm. You know, kids are very, very different from adults, extremely different from adults. And I think, you know, we don't always understand and accept that, um, especially when it comes to medicine. So it's a very important field that needs to be taken care of very well and very delicately. Um, kids are very delicate beings and, you know, how a society takes care of its children reflects how well that society is doing. Um, so right now, Guinea's not doing that great. <laughs> so my goal is really to go back to help fill in that gap. Um, I hope that I can, you know, train more people to be better in pediatrics, whether they want to be pediatricians or they just want to be generalists who are familiar with pediatrics. I am very passionate about medical education. So um, doing education and training is something else I want to do. Um, I am very interested in healthcare systems, rebuilding healthcare systems. So rebuilding the Guinean healthcare system is also on my to-do list. Um, and, you know, I think, of course, money, oh, you have to think about money, right? It's unrealistic to say, oh, money does not matter. Of course it matters. Mm -hmm. But I think for me, on my you know, list of priorities or on that on that spectrum of how much money matters, I think it's much lower on the spectrum. Mm. I 100% understand that me going back to Guinea to practice there, to work there, I'm going to be taking a huge pay cut for mm. sure. Um, and that's because I don't want to go to Guinea to make money off of being a doctor. I want to go to Guinea to help people with my mm. skills and my knowledge and experience. So a lot of people are like, oh, you're going to go back and open up a clinic. It's not within my aspiration within to open the clinic, at least right away. I think maybe years down the line. Mm -hmm. But my goal is to go back and work in the hospital. I want to be in the public hospital, you know, help the public hospital rebuild itself. Yeah. You know, take care of children who do not have the means to go to private clinics to be taken care of. Definitely. So yeah. that's that's my goal. That's my goal. Yeah, and the experience that you have is definitely going to be very useful just in terms of even the systematic improvement, right? Because I think one of the main issues right now in our in Guinea's healthcare system is, is the system. Uh, we have some amazing and very passionate uh, physicians who who who's definitely working hard to, to try to do their best, but 
I don't feel like we have taken the time to have a solid system that's gonna make care efficient. And that doesn't have to be like, I feel like just sharing the experience that you, that you have seen uh, from the hospitals here can definitely help improve that system in ways that many people cannot really understand there. And that can improve yeah. lives. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's definitely the goal. But I think, you know, I think for me, I, I, in being realistic, practicing medicine in the U.S. is different than practicing medicine in Guinea simply because the realities are different. Even the pathologies are different, right? I think some of the things that we worry about here, we don't necessarily worry about in Guinea. Mm -hmm. Some of the things that, are, that we worry about in Guinea, things like, you know, malaria, we don't worry about that here. Yeah. So I think, you know, what I foresee when I go back to Guinea, I think the first couple of years at least are going to be me learning Guinean medicine. Um, because I cannot come into a place and just, you know, throw at them what I have and what I know. I need to be able to understand learn. what's happening first and learn what's happening. So I think that's my goal. So first, learn Guinean medicine. And then second, see how I can use my experience and skills to improve Guinean medicine. No, exactly. And I feel like uh, that's definitely important uh, before before jumping in and trying to integrate your ideas, you definitely have to learn about uh, the, the issues that's happening, that's exactly happening there. So you know where you can't fall in. Uh, so that's definitely important. And I was reading a few articles earlier, uh, the, the mortality rate for children in, in, uh, in Guinea is one of the highest around the world, about I think 6, 6.8%. Uh, a year in 2018, that's still, that, that's pretty high. Especially in the, also in the OBGYN area, I, I've recently seen Laro, I mean, heard Laro uh, mortality, a high mortality rate for women who are giving birth. Um, I, I had a personal experience where I lost a cousin uh, from childbirth. So, so how, what, what do you feel like, uh, how, have you heard about those issues and What's your thought on the different issues? Like what's the main cause of those issues there? Yeah, I mean, it's crazy because I actually, my cousin also lost his wife during childbirth. So it's, it's very common. And I honestly also believe that a lot of those statistics are probably underreported because a lot of it happens and, yeah. you know, it's just not reported and um, we don't know about it. So I presume that it's much higher than it's actually reported. Um, so it's bad altogether. Um, but I think, I don't think there's one main cause. I think there's a myriad of causes to that. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, part of it, of course, is, you know, lack of access to proper healthcare. Yeah. Um, there's lack of training on handling things. I think, you know, one of the big things that things like the WHO are focusing on or like training community workers, for example, mm. to be able to have the skills and expertise to assist people in the community in areas where access to care is hard. But the other thing too, is even if you do have the access to the care, you know, are there the funds for you to be able to do that? So poverty is another thing, so lack of funds. And then what if you have the funds and the access are those, you know, healthcare systems or those healthcare entities equipped to provide the care, the necessary care? 
Mm-hmm. So, and then even if maybe they have or they don't, but are the people adequately trained to provide that care? So I think it's just a, a myriad of factors. Um, but I think a huge part of it is the fact that we just do not have the infrastructures. We don't have the infrastructures to um, so that support the, a good healthcare system. And so for that reason, I think it's usually the people who are in the lower social economic status that suffer the most. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately for Guinea, that is the majority of the people. Definitely, definitely. And uh, right now, if you talk, many people that that I talk to about are the healthcare issues in Guinea, they bring up the point that it, it is very hopeless in a way because the leaders that are supposed to help in improving these infrastructures and systems uh, just count on going to seek care outside of the country whenever they need it because they, they, they rather go outside and get the care they need instead of uh, fixing the care in Guinea where they can get it there. And with that, uh, since they, they are okay, the only people that are suffering is the people who do not have the ability to go outside, there's no big incentive for them to really uh, take these necessary actions to improve care. Uh, what's your thought on that? I, I mean, I have my own thoughts, but I just want to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I I personally do not think it's hopeless. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's there's a lot that we can do, but I think it takes a community and population effort. One, to hold those leaders accountable, right? Because it is a reality that we do have corruption. We do have corrupt leaders mm-hmm. who do not take the realities seriously. They may be aware, but they don't take them seriously. So one, it's a population effort to hold them accountable. Mm-hmm. And two, I think, you know, I think we... And I always say this, I think we need to become a little bit better at that, at actually, I know we have this community mindset in Guinea, but actually practicing that community mindset, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, being able to support our local clinics, for example, um, or, you know, being able to actually accept that, you know, if I am a physician and I am trained to help people, I'm not going to try to make money off of my the people who come to me for help. You know, I have to have this ethic, ethical integrity that exactly. I'm going to be the best person that I can be. Mm-hmm. So I think that starts at a personal and community and local level. And then I think there needs to be a degree of ethics and a degree of integrity that we need to have at baseline. And then from there, it I think it's going to empower us to hold our leaders accountable. You know, it's, and me and my aunt were talking, you have some doctors in Guinea who run illegal pharmacies, you know, like they'll have their medicine stash. And when the patient comes to them, they'll tell them, oh, you need this medicine, you need this medicine. And they tell them, oh, I have it. You don't need to go to the pharmacy to pay it. But they're not, they're not pharmacists, they're doctors. You know, there's recently (laughs) this huge case of Masila where these fake doctors, you know, operated on this lady, sexually assaulted her, and she ended up dying, you know, simply because at that community level, there is that ethical integrity is not there. So I think it it starts at the top. I think the top is rotten, but I think we also need to establish a very solid foundation. I think that solid foundation starts at the personal and community level. 
I completely agree. I, I definitely agree. And as you say, the, the, the physician should definitely come with the goal of using his expertise to help improve lives uh, ethically without expecting personal, how to call it, gains and stuff like that. And also the physician who, who comes in wanting to do that should the, the community that is in that he's that is getting help from that physician should know that they shouldn't always expect things to be free because that's gonna that's not gonna make the clinic successful, right? Uh, they definitely need to support in in uh, in any way they can to to the people that can't pay should be able to pay so the person who the people who could not pay can be helped for free uh, in a way. But it's definitely a big, uh, a big thing. But one thing that you mentioned earlier, the idea of being hopeless, that's, there's nothing that is hopeless. And if, if, if we decide to not do anything, then nothing gonna be done, right? The, no, matter, no matter what, no matter how bad it gets, we should always try to do whatever we can to, to improve, to make something better, right? There's always that possibility. And it is so amazing to know that there are uh, amazing people like you uh, who, who, who's really wanting to do that, who's trying to, to, to who, who know for sure that this is something they wanna do for the rest of their life and who's willing to commit the resources and the time that they have to really do that. Yeah, I mean, thank you. And I'm happy there's amazing people like you as well who are stirring these conversations. I think these are conversations we need to have. You know, I think it's important, you know, we can talk about all we want about, you know, how corrupt our leaders are. Those are old conversations. Those are things that we know are there. We know it's a gangrene of the system. But I think we also need to have conversations about what's happening at the bottom, what's happening at the core, you know. Um, so I think it's important to have those conversations. And I think having those conversations would definitely help us take that hopelessness because I don't think we're hopeless I think we have you know so much I think we have a lot of work to do and I think you know we should always figure out a way to turn our problems into opportunities you know and you know try to adjust them to our realities I think our Guinean realities are different from western realities you know we have to understand that accept that and you know, not only adapt to that, but see how we can turn that as an opportunity to build a robust healthcare system. That is amazingly said, man. Thank you, thank you so much uh, for that. And uh, I think we'll we'll end the, the, the this episode here. But for us, this is definitely uh, an introduction. I'm I'm I'm. It's an honor for me to to get to know you. Uh, I know this is the podcast, but. To, to meet you here, but I I really want this to be just an introduction for us. I'll definitely reach out. I feel like uh, there is a lot of things that we can discuss in terms of uh, our projects for the future and potential for collaboration. So I'll definitely uh, reach out uh, soon to, to talk more about that. But thank you so much. Uh, with, with how busy you are, thank you so much for giving your time and, and uh, sitting down to talk to me uh, today. Uh, thank you so much. I mean, it was an honor. Thank you for the invitation. Like I said before, I'm extremely grateful to be here, um, you know, to share this space with you and to share this space with, you know, everybody who's listening. Um, 
thank you for for doing this. I think it's amazing that you're doing it. I think it will definitely inspire and empower a lot of us. Um, and I'm really, really looking forward to all the future collaborations. Thank you so much for taking your time and listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you feel like this episode has helped you in any way, share it with a friend, family, or loved one. Before you leave, make sure to subscribe for more.